Good morning, church. We'll just wait till the kids head out here. I'm going to read the scripture verse for for us today. Um, If you guys don't have a Bible with you today, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Our Frontlines team is just coming around here with some Bibles, and they would love to give one to you. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take this home as our gift to you. So today we are reading Genesis 3, 1 to 8. Okay, Genesis 3, 1 to 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning. How are we? Good. Come on now. How are we? We're all right? Well, we are, in the next couple of weeks, taking on what I would say are probably our most controversial. And they're controversial for a couple of reasons, but I think by and large they're the most controversial because of the changing attitude in our culture, particularly towards the LGBTQ plus community. And so as a result, um, this is not a conflict and is not a controversy that has necessarily been dreamed up by evangelical Christians, but this is instead a response from the evangelical Protestant Christian world to say, because because there have been a changing view within our culture, we have to ask questions of ourselves of what do we believe and why do we believe it and how are we going to respond? And that, that's really, really key for all of us to understand. Second reality is that, you know, a number of you are in this room today, and some of you are maybe visitors. You heard that this was going to be the topic discussed, and you've been part of a church family somewhere, and they just are not talking about this, right? And, and who, like, to be honest, like, who really wants to jump into this? Um, I mean, there is some fear and trepidation by which I stand here today, understanding that there's probably a whole host of different views in this room today. And so, as a result, some of you are here, and you're here because your church isn't talking about it, and so you want to know answers to those questions. Some of you are representatives from the LGBT plus community, and you have been on the receiving end of, of hurt, of mean-spirited language, and so you're here today to also say, hey, what do Christians believe about it? And you have maybe genuine questions, maybe you're skeptical about, is there a God, and all these different things. You're also maybe here today, and you are a follower of Jesus. You have said, I am a follower of Jesus, I want to follow the way of Jesus in my life, but you have confusion around what is the biblical definition of sexuality, what is the biblical definition of marriage, or maybe you've arrived at a definition, but if you're honest with yourself, you're not really sure if the definition that you have can be backed up. And so each of us in this room represent what this means is each of us in this room might represent various and differing worldviews. And in a worldview, you answer the three questions that I'm going to put on the screen. The first is is a question of authority, which asks this, who has the right to tell me what to do? 
This is the first thing your worldview is going to tell you. Who has the right to tell me what to do? For some people, this is family. For some people, this is community. For other people, it might be a religion that they're a part of. For other people, in our culture, it's themselves. I am the only person in this world that has the right to tell me what to do. Secondly, knowledge. Who knows what is best for me? Another question that by and large within our culture is being answered by self. I know what is best for me. Not my family, not the world in which, the the particular culture in which I'm born. I know what is best for me. And then thirdly, trustworthiness. Who loves me and wants the best for me? And what is the very best for me? And there's a whole host of different things that you can look to for these answers. Within the Christian worldview, however... We believe that the answers to these questions find themselves in the scriptures. And if you doubt the scriptures, I'd highly recommend you go to our podcast from last week for a really in-depth look about why Christians trust the scriptures, why Christians, by and large, trust the Bible as our source of authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. But here's what this means, okay? You're going to be in this room today, as we are, and you might not arrive at the same answers that I'm going to arrive at today. And that's a question of who you look to for authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is hopefully a helpful understanding for you to have of why Christians hold the view that they do. Secondly, you're in this room, and as I already said, you are a follower of Jesus, but you might land in a different position than I do today and where our church does. And if that is you, I would put to you the same challenges that I'm going to put in my message today towards your view. To ask you the question, who has authority, who has the knowledge, and who has the trust worthiness. But what that means is that there's going to be varying views. And as a result, I recognize that right now. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, brilliant, brilliant book. I cannot say that enough. Says this about our worldviews. Humans are not self-creating, self-existent, self-defining beings. We all look to outside sources to inform us about who we are and how we should live. We look for a rule or a grid to help us decide which feelings and impulses are good versus those that are unhealthy or immoral and should be re-channeled. So every single one of us, regardless of your background, your belief system, looks to something as your worldview and you get it from somewhere outside of yourself. Now before we specifically jump in to answer the question of what about the gay community, let's take a moment, let's pause, let's quiet our hearts. I'd encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you today. Identify where you're at and how you're feeling. And so, Holy Spirit, we do invite you to speak to us today. Pray no matter the background that, Holy Spirit, you would speak and that you would work and that you would soften our hearts. God, I want you to be the authority. I want you to be the source of knowledge and the place, God, where we look to see our trustworthiness. So I pray that we would look to you for that only. We thank you for what you're going to do today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I first want to begin by answering the question of the current cultural war that we are in as it relates to sexuality. Now, many of you might know this. I would, I would gather many of you do not. But in 1988, in Virginia, in February, there was actually a conference hosted. And the conference they titled was called the War Conference. And the War Conference was a conference made up of, by and large, gay activists. And they came together and they said, how are we going to change American opinion on the gay community. 
And through this conference, they came up with a three-pronged approach about how they were going to change American opinion. And the first prong of their approach was this. They wanted to desensitize Americans to gay relationships. They wanted to desensitize Americans to gay relationships, and they believed that the best approach would be to use a continuous flood of gay advertising that they believed would be presented, and their approach was to present it in the least offensive way possible. So that was the first approach, desensitize Americans to gay relationships. Their second approach was to jam up all opposition to gay relationships. And what they did was they were going to do this through economic and political means to stop any opposition. There was actually a guy by the name of Tim Gill who committed $500 million to this economic and political battle. He's actually quoted as saying that we're going to go into the most southern states and we're going to punish the wicked. And what he means by wicked is anybody that opposes same-sex marriage and homosexuality in general. The third approach, those are the first two, desensitize Americans, jam up all oppositions. And the third approach is going to be to convert American opinion. Convert American opinion. And they had three ways that they were going to do this. The first was to remove homosexuality as a psychological disorder. Secondly, to legislate gay relationships. And thirdly, to attack the church and remove homosexuality as a sin. Now... I don't know about you, but as we survey our culture, this is probably one of the most effective conferences that were ever held in the changing view of the LGBTQ plus community and homosexuality in general in our culture. Especially as you consider history, in that 2,000 years prior, there was uniform opinion on what was human sex, healthy human sexuality in the church. And additionally, that many of the world religions held what I'll call a traditional view before that. The swing in the 31 years since this conference has been dramatic. Now, as, this, uh, as these different approaches, as these three prongs were being walked out, there was a response. And it was actually a very, very unhealthy and awful response from what is known as the moral majority. This was the moral majority is a group that are the rally cry for traditional values led by a guy named Jerry Falwell, said some terrible things like this. AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It is God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Awful. This group also used political tactics in response to the political tactics of those in the war conference, and they introduced the Defense of Marriage Act, which was implemented and signed by Bill Clinton. Now, this is the culture war. And from that culture war, what I first want to do is I want to offer an apology to you and to anyone who is in this room, if I can in any way, to say we are sorry, and I'm sorry for how the church has potentially treated you, your friends, your family members, in response to to this whole topic. Like, it's not been kind. It's not been fair. We have treated people as issues. We have not treated people as those made in the image of God whom we are called to love and to care for, even if we disagree. Secondly, I would say that there is a reality that the church needs to begin talking more about this because 15%, and I'm reading some other research, but about, roughly about 15% of those within the church can share that they struggle with same-sex attraction. 
So it's not something that is out there. It's also something that's going on in here that we need to consider. Another reality is that roughly 51% of evangelical millennials uh, do not see anything wrong with same-sex behavior. Now, some of you in this room would celebrate that fact. But I would suggest that maybe many millennials are not considering the tradition of many years, nor considering thinking deeply about this topic as we're going to today. And then thirdly, I recognize there's also a level of complexity to this. Because for many of us in this room, there's personal experience. Maybe it's yourself wrestling in this area. Maybe you have friends and family members. And so for you, this isn't something that's out there. It's something that's very much going on in your family and in your world. Thirdly, many of us are connected to different social networks. And so our social networks, if we're honest, also um, influence the way that we think. This is what influences what we believe and how we respond. And so I recognize that as I'm speaking today, I'm not speaking to people that are disconnected from the world around them, but very much connected. And that where you land as far as your beliefs and as your practice can deeply influence, as you might believe, how you actually live in relationship. Now what I would say is that we have a bit of a dichotomy because of this culture war. And the dichotomy is that people genuinely now believe that in order for you to love somebody that you disagree with, that you need to just agree with everything that they do. On the opposite side is those that say, well, if I disagree with you, I can't be in relationship with you. And I would say this is very false. This is a false way of thinking. I believe that it is totally an option to love somebody and to disagree with them. I'm sure that, you know, if we were to talk today, there would be things about maybe the way, if you're a parent, the way that you raise your kids or a number of other topics that I would disagree with you on. But that doesn't mean I'm telling you I don't want to be in relationship with you. And so as we go through this today, I do need to say that as we respond to the watching world, we need to be a group of people that is able to respond to the watching world and be an example of how we can continue to love one another and not live with ongoing polarization, but that we don't have to adopt each other's views in order to do that. And so, what I want to do today is I want to start, as I understand we're walking into this complexity and the confusion, I want to speak what I'm about to say and how I'm about to go through the scriptural text with a level of humility and fear and trepidation, recognizing where we are today, and that where we will land might not uh, align with what your current view is. So, let's begin. I want to start in Genesis 1. This is the ground zero for Christian understanding and views of theology of sex and sexuality and healthy relationships. And the reason being is because Christians affirm that there is a God and that this God is a creator. And so if we're going to find out the purpose of our lives, if we're going to find out the purpose for our sexuality, we need to look at the pages of the scriptures that describe and define for us what healthy sexuality and the purpose of sexuality in the first place and the purpose and reason for our existence. And so Genesis 1 tells us that. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 1 verse 27 This is what we read. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's what God does. God creates man and he creates woman in his image. And we read here that he creates them to reflect his likeness. And what this means is that we are like God and that we're made in his image, but you and I are not God as some worldviews would attest, that all of us are God. No, we are not God. We serve God, but we are not God. But 
We are like him, and our role and responsibility and purpose in this world is to reflect what God is like, and male and female does that to the watching world. You and I, as male and female, we are different, and we are complements, and God creates this complementarity to reflect, to be reflected in marriage. Nancy Piercy in Love Thy Body, you're going to hear me quote this book a bit today and then also next week. She writes this, Scripture teaches that the creational differentiation of male and female is a good thing. Our complementary nature speaks of our yearning for union, which in turn reflects the divine nature. A God who is a trinity differentiated persons in relationship with one another. The question is, do we accept the created structure or do we in fact reject it? We go on into Genesis 2 and we discover Adam's response to the complementary creation of Eve. This is Genesis 2, 23 to 25. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is how Piercy describes what's going on here. Biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, and anatomically, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. Anglican theologian Oliver O'Donovan writes, to have a male body is to have a body structurally ordered to loving union with a female body and vice versa. The body has a built-in telos or purpose. And notice how this union is described. It's described as one flesh, which is one in friendship, one in calling and mission, and one physically. Now, what does this mean? What's the summary? What is the purpose of human sexuality, male and female, marriage? In summary, God creates male and female to reflect his image, and their union in marriage are one flesh to express love, worship, and joy for him in the world. This is the purpose, the reason for the creation of male and female and for marriage according to the Creator. If we are to be a people that reflect not our own desires of what we want for ourselves, but God's desire, if we are telling the world the story of God, it deeply matters how we tell that story. And that's what we find here in Genesis. So God's design for sexuality is two complementary sexes joined in monogamous harmony. Now this is unique and something that two people of the same sex or two people not joined in marriage can simply not do. This complementary, complementarity is also set up to mimic the complementarity of the Trinity or the Godhead and between Christ and his bride, the church who will one day be joined to Christ, who is our groom. So what does this mean? Because right, this has implications. What does this mean? It means that anything sexual outside the confines of the monogamous marriage relationship between a man and woman is not God's design, nor was it his intention. Now, let me say, I recognize that within the cultural war that we are living in, that this seems, and it is, a very closed and exclusive view. And it would be very offensive to many in our culture who hold a different view of human sexuality. And one of the main questions someone might ask is, well, okay, but where do same-sex desires come from if they're not part of God's original design and his original desire? 
And for that answer, let's go to Genesis 3, verses 1 to 8. Andrea read it for us before. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now this section, these eight verses, is the story of humans' rebellion against God, in which everything changes, and it's also ground zero for why things are currently the way that they are. So notice what the first humans do. Notice how they were tempted. Number one, they're tempted to distrust God's commands and his words. The serpent says, did God actually say? Secondly, they believe the lie. Because what does the Satan or the serpent say to them? You will not surely die. Have you ever met Adam and Eve? No, they're dead. Satan is a liar. Thirdly, he offers them a new image or identity. But notice, they were already created in God's image. They already had the divine identity. And then fourthly, they act. And friends, this is the same cycle that's been going on ever since. And as a result, sexuality, desire, gender, attraction, and our actions are out of sync with God's design. Now, question is, well, does God give up on his people? And do we give up on seeking his original design? I mean, these things exist in our world. And the scriptural response to that is absolutely not. Because for the rest of the scriptures, it tells us the story of God acting, redeeming, and saving his people in love and grace, and inviting his people into a relationship with himself. And this relationship that he's inviting us into is to show the world of an alternative society, to show the world what it looks like to be in perfect relationship with its God. Now, as we go to the rest of the scriptures, and we're specifically going to be honing in here on gay relationships, I recognize that there might e- there's even some um, controversy around the language that you use about the gay community. Uh, whether you talk about uh, someone um, being gay, whether you use the language of homosexuality, it's a little bit of an older term, or whether you use the language of same-sex attracted. In the current system, people think of the view of the traditional view of marriage, which would be the historic, what I just described. The new view within the church would be understood as the progressive view. I'm going to be using a few of these terms as we go through here today. I'm not intentionally intending to offend anyone in the room, but please uh, be gracious with me as we go through and as I use some of these terms interchangeably to describe what we're talking about. Now, throughout the rest of the scriptures, as many will argue, homosexuality is very uh, infrequently mentioned. Uh, As we're going to look at today, there's actually five passages in total that speak to it directly. 
Okay, so someone would say, and as we'll see, you see, we don't, we can move past this now because the five texts, they don't matter and the scriptures are overall very quiet about it. And that's true. Now, what you need to understand, though, is while there is much silence in the scriptures about gay behavior, it is never affirmed in the scriptures. Now, this is really important to understand. It's also important to understand that we're not talking about someone's attraction, We're talking about the behavior of same-sex sex or engaging in same-sex activity. We're not talking about someone's attraction. That is not sinful. We're talking about the activity or acting upon one's desires. And so that said, we're going to go through the five texts in the scriptures. Now you might say, well, why do we got to go through the five texts? Here's why we have to go through the five texts. Because there are a number of people taking these texts and misunderstanding them, misquoting them, and using them, uh, both within the church and outside of the church. And so it's extremely helpful for us to be aware of what's going on around these texts and to understand a bit of how and why Christians still hold uh, to a historic position, or many Christians still do. So we're first going to go to the text in Leviticus, and some of you are like, oh man, Leviticus. But we're going to go to Leviticus for starters, okay? Now, these are harsh texts, and I'll describe their harshness in a moment. Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, while these are civil laws, here's what's going on in Leviticus. Leviticus is all about God's people living as the covenant holy people. And so what Leviticus is all about is God telling his people how they can be holy like he is holy. And chapter 18 of Leviticus, where this first text is, is about holiness as it relates to family and sexual activity. Other activities that are mentioned are incest, having a rival wife, committing adultery, killing one's children, or practicing bestiality. It doesn't tell us everything, but it does tell us the basics and points us back to the created order of male and female. Secondly, in chapter 20, it's actually exactly the same. It's echoing God's created order, as we see here in Leviticus 20, verse 13. The phrase, as with a woman, which the writer is intentionally calling to mind Genesis 2, where God made the first woman as a complement. The text, as some progressives would like to suggest, says nothing about an older man and a youth. It's the generic language of male stipulating that a male shall not lie with a male as he would lie with a woman. The phrase, both of them, also condemns both the person who's in the active role of same-sex behavior and in the passive role of same-sex activity. This is not about victims, as both parties were to receive death penalties, and this is all about holiness being God's holy people in a world to be an alternative society. Now, some of you are like, but do away with Leviticus. It doesn't matter. But here's why Leviticus matters on this point. Number one is that Jesus in the New Testament and Paul in the New Testament both quote Leviticus. Secondly, as we'll see in the following text, Paul actually coins his term for homosexuality from Leviticus using the, the words of arson, which is man, and then the, the other word kite, which is bed. And as we're going to see, the word that he comes up with is arsenicotai. Also, we see here that there's obviously a seriousness to the degree of this activity because Leviticus is using such language as abomination. 
Also, apart from sex during menstruation, the sexual ethic in Leviticus 18 and 20 is also squarely affirmed in the rest of the scriptures and in the New Testament. So it's not like the New Testament changes its view about this behavior when it, when it transitions to the New Testament. It's uniform all the way through the scriptures. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. Again, two texts. Okay, now we're going to go to the New Testament because that's when the next verses appear. So if you have your Bibles, or if you don't, it's going to be on the screen. Let's go to the New Testament. The first is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. And then the second that we'll get to is 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then what does he say? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that's the first, 1 Corinthians. Now 1 Timothy 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I would say, and we're going to get there, but the church has unfairly gone after those who practice homosexuality while giving great uh, additional freedom to those that are struggling or are acting in the other areas. And this has been wrong. We've highlighted one thing over other things, and that's been wrong, and the church needs to own that. But what's going on within both of these passages? Now, as I mentioned, Paul is going to coin his term in 1 Corinthians, his Greek term, arsenikotai. Can everyone say arsenikotai? Now, there are actually no examples of this word surviving Greek literature prior to Paul. And so what this means is Paul is likely coming up with this word to describe what he is recognizing is going on within the church and the culture. And he says this, this word is actually a compound of arson, which is man, and bed, which is koitai. So the literal translation of arsenikotai is bedders of men or those who take males to bed. As we see, Paul likely coined this term from Leviticus 18 and 20. The second term that is used in 1 Timothy is malakos. Can everyone say malakos? And malakos means being yielded to touch or being passive in a same-sex relationship. So some argue Paul is speaking of men who make their appearances like women, but the, why would in the world would he include it under the sexually immoral in the passage? Okay, so that's an understanding, arsenikotai and malakos. Now, I want to address, because there are objections to these views of these words and in the general in the scriptures, okay? So I want to go over those with you and then the objections that I would have based upon my reading to those objections. Is that okay? Here's what you might hear as you're engaging with people in conversations. And these are objections from the progressive or the revisionist view. One, we're not talking, the scriptures are not talking about that kind of homosexuality. 
The argument is this. The ancient world had no concept of sexual orientation and no understanding of egalitarian, loving and committed, monogamous, covenantal, same-sex unions. And the issue was not, the issue that Paul is speaking to is not men with men, but he's speaking about men with boys. Essentially, then, we aren't talking about the same thing. Now, a couple challenges with this view. Number one, if the biblical authors meant to frown upon only certain kinds of homosexual arrangements, they wouldn't have condemned the same-sex act itself in such absolute terms or in such absolute ways. Secondly, if the biblical authors expected us to know what they really had in mind— and no one figured this out for two millennia, it appears that they came up with remarkably an ineffective way of getting their actual points across. Like if you want to describe that particular action or that particular activity, you would just tell us in the text. But they don't. They put a generic understanding of it going on. The other thing is that there actually are historical examples of consensual same-sex unions at this period of time. Many actually argue, historians, that there are historical examples. And by first century AD, the Roman Empire was increasingly divided on the topic of homosexuality, as every kind of homosexual relationship was known in the first century. Many historians actually argue that they were just as advanced on the topic, if not more than we are today. And so we are talking about the same kind. Secondly, someone will say, well, Jesus, he never talks about homosexuality. He never talks about same-sex behavior or gay relationships. In objection, I would point to two texts that Jesus actually does talk about these sorts of things. Number one is Matthew 5, verse 19. This is what Jesus says. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now Jesus, in this text, is talking, and he uses the term sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia. Now generally, porneia is of every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual intercourse. What Jesus is doing here is he's using the, the belief at the time of what was sexual immorality to describe to people that that is amongst this list. And people at the time within the Jewish community would have understood what he was talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about anything outside of the covenantal relationship of a man and woman in marriage. Jesus then, in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two, they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's appealing to Genesis 2 to articulate his teaching on a proper sexual ethic. Jesus explicitly declares the validity of the one type of sexual relationship, one which is grounded in the one flesh relationship found in monogamous heterosexual marriage. So this is Jesus addressing these things. Thirdly, the progressive view would say, well, there's overall scriptural silence. As I've identified, we're going to get to a fifth text, and I've already given you four. They say there's overall scriptural silence. Number one, 
Why is there overall scriptural silence? Well, number one, homosexuality, gay relationships, was a comparatively uncontroversial sin amongst Jews and Christians. There is no, no historical evidence that Judaism or early Christianity tolerated any expression of gay behavior. Secondly, as we see, the Bible isn't completely silent. And then thirdly, there's nothing ambiguous about the biblical witness concerning homosexual behavior. This from Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? He writes this, The gay Dutch scholar Pim Pronk, after admitting that many Christians are eager to see homosexuality supported by the Bible, states plainly, In this case, the support is lacking. Although he doesn't think moral positions must be dependent on the Bible, which is why he can support homosexual behavior. As a scholar, he recognizes that wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in the scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. The assessment of it nowhere constitutes a problem. Pronk recognizes that wherever the Bible speaks on this issue, it speaks with one voice. Now, some of you who have done some reading and research on this topic might be saying, well, what about Romans 1? And so if you have your Bibles, please go with me to Romans 1. Now, what's Paul doing in this passage of Romans 1? Well, he's speaking about the futility or the depravity of man and God's justice towards injustice, unrighteousness, and he writes about that in this, in this text, in the root of it. Romans 1. It's on the screen, too. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice where he roots it, right? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So they say, we're gonna, we're God, we're going to doubt what you say to us. Their minds are changed. They're futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and the birds and the animals and creeping things. They begin worshiping created things rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He continues, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gives them over to their desires. You don't want to honor me. You don't want to love me. You don't want to trust me. I'll give you up to your passions. For their women... Exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. How does Paul, and where does Paul root this? Paul roots this in disordered worship or idolatry, replacing God with something else. He's saying the way that we live our lives, if, if all of our lives is worship of either honoring ourselves or honoring God, that's where all of this question really comes down to, is who are you going to honor? Who's going to have authority? Who's going to have knowledge? Who's going to have trustworthiness? What will you worship? Is it yourself or is it going to be God? It's all about our worship. So the question is, well, what do we do about our identity? And what do we do about our idolatry issues? And this is the great good news of the gospel, 
is that Jesus comes, God himself comes, and he restores and reorders our worship and identity, no matter who we are and who we identified ourselves to be in the past. And therefore, what Jesus says is he is worth every sacrifice because he has given everything for us to redeem and to restore us. He gives us a completely new identity. Notice what, if you go back to the 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 10, I have it on the screen again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Those who don't want God's kingdom on earth do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. What do we do with the greedy in our midst? We don't call them out in the same way we do the gay community. We're on the hook, followers of Jesus, to call out greed. Or those that are drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers. But notice what Paul writes. And such were some of you. He says, that's where you used to find your identity. But look who you are now because of Christ. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Those things do not define you anymore. What defines you is what I have done for you. You're an adopted child of the Most High God. I love you. I'm for you. I have your best interests at heart because I created you. We are washed by Christ. And when we submit to him, he begins to reorder our desires and the futility of the human condition. What this means is that no matter who you are in this room or the background that you come into, Jesus wants you. He loves you. And what you need to decide is, do I trust that he knows what is best for me? And will I trust him? And that's across the board as it is sexuality in general. Will you trust him? We believe that he does have your best interests at heart, that he knows what is best for you. And if the best thing is to worship him, then you need to figure out is what is proper worship. And one of the ways that we worship God is with our body. Paul talks about this constantly. And that's what Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, is about, is that in our culture, we've separated our minds from our bodies, and we don't trust or love our bodies anymore. We don't trust the body that we are in we trust and we worship what's in our mind and what our mind tells us to do, but not what is representative in our physical bodies. So a last question is how do we respond? How do we respond? Followers of Jesus, those of us who aren't, how do we respond? Number one, I think it's deeply important that we think deeply about human sexuality and about marriage. It's not enough to be lazy about this because we are dealing with real people whom God loves and wants to redeem and to restore. And what we need to do is we need to explore and come to terms with how we answer the following questions. What is my definition of godly marriage and sexuality? How do you answer that question? What is your definition of godly marriage and sexuality? Then you've got to ask the question, how did you get that definition? And thirdly, do the scriptures support your definition? Or has it been created for yourself? 
Secondly, in how we respond to our neighbors, to our friends, maybe even those who are in our families, or those who are within our church body who are wrestling with same-sex attraction. We have to lead with embrace. We welcome with open arms. This is what Deborah Hirsch in her book, Redeeming Sex, writes. Jesus didn't wait for us to get our behaviors cleaned up before he embraced us. He embraced us first with open arms. Working this out relationally with people is always a little bit more complex, but it is essential with our gay friends and family members that we don't close the relational doors. As one of my friends reminds me, embrace is theology. Now, while this is hard, we've got to do this. This is, this is true love. If you're a YouTube person, I'd highly recommend, write this down, you've got to watch the YouTube video, Dear Church, I'm Gay, which is put out by the Center of Faith of Human Sexuality and Gender. It's brilliant. Dear Church, I'm Gay. You have to watch it. If we had three hours here, I would have shown you because it's 20 minutes long and it's absolutely brilliant. Dear Church, I'm Gay. Search that on YouTube, Center for Faith, Gender, and Sexuality. Thirdly, how do we respond? We have to take all sin seriously, not some or one. Gay sex is just one of the many other sins listed in the passages that we looked at together today. Other things, as we saw, were listed are greed, drunkenness, revilers, envy, gossip, slander, boasting, disobedience, or any kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Christopher Yoon writes this, I had always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality, but actually the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. It's holiness. Being set apart, trusting Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Fourthly, how do we respond? We need to find and we need to see God in other, in other people because every single person on this planet has been made in the image of God. God is there, and you just have to look and see and find him and see what he is up to in each person's life. Five, man, how much good would it do if we were to pray intentionally in our, in our, in our own lives, but also for our neighbors, our friends, and our family members? Sixth, we need to listen carefully Listen carefully. Do not assume that you know someone's story and therefore write them off. Christians are generally good tellers, but not necessarily good listeners. And many of our LGBTQ plus friends have had experience with church before, and as a result, the way that they were treated, they just walked away. Seventh, we need to repent humbly. We need to repent humbly. Repent is to turn from a way of thinking, to reorder our minds. So Deb Hirsch writes, God's people should be the very ones marked by humility, repentance, and in turn, forgiveness. Even if we don't believe we have personally sinned against LGBT members, we sure belong to a historic church community that has. People who follow a humble God ought to have no problem in saying sorry when it is appropriate. And within the Christian church, and we talked about this a little bit in the fall when we were going through our Song of Songs series, is that Christians need to repent of the ways in which we've glorified marriage as being the climax of everybody's life 
and that suddenly there's something wrong with somebody if they're not married or if they're not in a relationship. That if they're, you know, 30 years old and you're not married, what's wrong with you? There must be something wrong with you. If we are going to be a community that welcomes people with varying sexual appetites and attitudes and desires, but some people are called to live in light of what God's desire is, that might look like celibacy for a number of people. And if we don't have a church community where it's comfortable for someone to be celibate and single, we might as well say goodbye to our LGBTQ plus friends. We need to step up and be the church where people can admit and confess what's going on inside of their hearts and inside of their lives and where they're welcomed with open arms. And so this means that we don't glorify Christian marriage as the climax and as the best thing that has ever happened in someone's life, nor will. Marriage is good. God created it and he loves it. But it's not like if you're not, then there's something wrong with you. Paul, as Spencer did the message on singleness back in the fall, actually says it's better to be single. Do we see it that way in the Christian church and in church of the city in which myself and the other elders are responsible? And are we creating places in our missional communities where both single and people with a whole host of different attractions and behaviors can live, can be loved, can confess, can share, and I'm going to say the exact same thing next week, where we can literally wrestle with these things together in love and humility. And so if you are a follower of Jesus today, I would invite you to repent of any attitudes that you have had in the past that relate to this and to step in and trust Jesus. I'd also invite you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that you'd commit your life to following Christ, believing that he wants to reorder your desires and reorder your worship and show you and exemplify to you and teach you what it means to follow him and that he truly has the best at heart. With that, I'd invite you to watch the video as we watch a testimony story from a guy by the name of Beckett. When I was, you know, in elementary school, I started to realized that I was becoming attracted to the same sex. I was like, wait, this is odd and no, no one else is feeling this way and I can't, and no one else can know about this. When I was a junior in high school, my best friend, we came out to each other. So then I suddenly had this confidant in high school whom I could tell everything to and tell him what I was feeling and what it was like and he understood and, and we could talk and and we started going out you know we started going to gay bars in high school we started going to clubs and and then even in high school I still felt that being gay was not something that I was going to be for the rest of my life I just thought oh well eventually I'll get married and have kids and this will just kind of go away but it didn't go When I went to college, I was feeling more and more like homosexuality was becoming my core identity. I just knew that Christianity was never an option for me, uh, ever. I just thought, this I, I'm a gay man, like I can't ever be a Christian. 
the, the never the twain shall meet. And so I just thought, I just put God even further on the back burner and didn't even think of God at all. And then after college, I moved to LA and I got in with a group of friends who were, um, who are all like-minded. We lived our lives always kind of just wanting to two things and it was success and career and to find true love. I think I had a, a total of five, five serious relationships and they, um, and they were all very intense and very real and every time I was in one of these relationships it was like okay this is the one like this is the guy who is gonna give me meaning in my life this is the person that's gonna save me like I, I seriously saw them as almost like a messiah like this person will give my life meaning I'll have a, re a reason to live like I and I, I put so much pressure on these relationships and so during during all this time in Hollywood I did everything I went to all the premieres I went to Oscars the Emmys the Grammys and I went to the governor's ball after the Oscars and like that life I was living was kind of, it was satisfying it was fun and it was I kind of felt like high from it I was at a one of the after parties one night and like everyone was dancing and all the people in the fashion world were there and it was like very glamorous and and I just remember just looking out over the sea of people all having the times of their lives and I just felt so empty and dead inside I was like I felt so alone and just empty About, I think six months later, I was at a coffee shop in Silver Lake. We noticed something very shocking. The table next to us had just Bibles all over it. And we were kind of fascinated by it, even though it was, to us, it was like the enemy. Um, like those are the people who hate who we are. So, but we were fascinated by them still. So my friend urged me to, to talk to them. And I said, well, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And he said, well, you know, it's a sin. And like, I just stayed and I was like, huh, okay. That's interesting. And then we talked some more and then he invited me to his church. Somehow I got, I just, I don't even, I got up the Sunday morning and the pastor comes out and he started preaching from Romans chapter seven. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just flooded me. That's when I saw the holiness of God and my sinfulness at the same time. It, and I just started bawling. It, it was like this mix of, of joy and, and sorrow. 
like sorrow over my sin and joy over the fact that I just met the king of the universe, God, Jesus. In that moment, I knew that God was real, Jesus was real, heaven was real, hell was real, eternal life was real, the Bible was real. I, I just, God was like, this is who I am. This is who you are. You're now in my kingdom. You're now my child. And we now are reconciled and we have a relationship. And I was like, God, you have my whole life. Like, this is it. It's all yours. When I was living that gay life and for many, many years, I was 100% sure that was my identity. Like it was, I felt like I was born that way. I, it was my orientation, it was my identity. And I felt like it was immutable. And one of the things that also happened during that, that moment of conversion was I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that homosexuality was not who I was, that my identity was in Christ, that that was not who I was. This is the issue, the deal breaker. Homosexuality is the deal breaker for the LGBT community when it comes to Christianity. And I felt the same way. People always say, well, isn't it unloving to say that homosexuality is a sin? And I'm like, no, it's unloving to let people spend eternity apart from God. And that's unloving. This life is a vapor. This life is a mist. It's like two seconds long. Eternity is a long time. And whether you believe it or not, we're all gonna face Christ on the last day. And we're either gonna be under his mercy or under his wrath. That's the bottom line. And whether you believe that or not, that's going to happen. That's what's at stake is eternity. That's what's at stake. Do you want just this kind of temporary pleasure right now? Or do you want eternity with God. Do not let this one issue, and I know it's a very powerful, strong issue, but do not let this one issue prevent you from eternity with God. So Heavenly Father, in the midst of this cultural Reality, we, God, we have to make a decision about who will be the one with authority, who we will trust. So God, we want that, God, I want that to be you. But that means that I need to submit and surrender every area of my life where I'm looking to be the authority where I'm trusting myself and where I'm looking to myself for knowledge instead of you. So God, I pray for every person in this room, every person that will listen to this message afterwards, God, that your Holy Spirit would come, and that your Spirit would do a work inside of us. You'd show us who you are and who we are, and that your incredible love would be on display. And may we, as that love becomes real to our hearts, may we become the most loving people the world has ever known because we're changed by your love. So we thank you. We praise you. And as we sing to you, God, may we, may we sing. May you show us. May you give us the, by the power of your spirit, the power to sing, the desire to sing, even when we don't understand. 
your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have people at the front here that would love to pray with you. And so if you'd like to be prayed with, feel free to come to the front.